Good morning. Uh, my name is Erin Phelps, and I am part of the East Charlotte Community Group. Today's scripture reading comes from Joel 2, 12 through 17. This is why the Lord says, turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not punish. Who knows? Perhaps he will give you a reprieve. Perhaps you'll be able to offer grain and wine to the Lord your God as before. Bow the ram's horn in Jerusalem. Announce a time of fasting. Call the people together for a solemn meeting. Gather all the people, the elders, the children, and even the babies. Call the bridegroom from his quarters and the bride from her private room. Let the priests who minister in the Lord's presence stand and weep between the entry room to the temple and the altar. Let them pray. Spare your people, Lord. Don't let your special possession become an object of mockery. Don't let them become a joke for unbelieving foreigners who say, has the God of Israel left them? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Christ Central Church. Before I begin, I just have to make a couple, couple uh, mistakes I made. I need to correct, not mistakes, but um, I, was, I noticed that uh, the woman's soul time is not Wednesday, Thursday. So don't go Wednesday, go Thursday. Uh, you can sign up, and this is why you don't just listen to what I say, right? You go to the church center and trust that there are other people that are wiser than me that know when it begins. So Thursday, this Thursday, and I heard just amazing things about that event. So if you are interested in connecting with other women, please do go to our church center to connect and to be part of this whole time. Um, also, I want to mention that today, on the, actually, the September 15th marks the start of the National Hispanic Heritage Month. And throughout this month, what we're going to do is highlight different ways that um, the, the people with Hispanic heritage has shown us a little bit more of what true Christ is. And we're going to celebrate that together as a body of Christ. Um, so please do check our social media, follow uh, to find out more, uh, ask questions and to learn. And I think oftentimes we often want to know, but our, it's also our calling to go and learn as well in this month as well. Uh, we are continuing our sermon series in 12 prophets, 12 minor prophets, and today we are with Prophet Joel, a Prophet Joel that's found in the Old Testament. When a tragedy strikes, people often wonder, where is God? Why would God let this happen? In 2017, New York Times opinion article, writer Peter Wenner asked, after great pain, where is God? And he then surveys the writing of the Christian apologist C.S. Lewis, as well as his own experience with tragedy. And he comes to the conclusion, I have seen enough of life to know that the grief will leave its mark. The grief will leave its mark. And when we look at the headlines that you and I read throughout this week, and we also wonder um, with a similar question, where is God? We wonder of this when we hear close to 3,000 people dying in Morocco's earthquake. We wonder the same when the news of over 11,000 people dying due to a flood with rain in Libya, with the dams collapsing. When mass fires, hurricanes hurt and kill people, when your house, your loved ones, your community suffers, 
the list goes on and on and on. The heartbreak goes on and on and on. And often we find ourselves asking, where is God in all this? Has God forgotten about us? And perhaps one of the biggest struggles in believing the existence of God, especially the God who says, I'm a loving God who invites you to come into my presence, is the question that we ask, where is God when tragedy strikes us? Where is God when natural disasters strike our communities? What is God doing in the midst of all this? In fact, in the time of Joel, this is a similar question the prophet Joel had to deal with and speak into. Prophet Joel was a prophet, a spokesman who spoke the word of God to his people in the Old Testament. He's a prophet in Judah who could have lived either in the 9th century or 5th century or 4th century. And we don't really know how and when he lived because he doesn't give a lot of context. There's a broad spectrum and many debate when he lived and what time that he's speaking into. But pretty much everyone could agree that his message is right on because he speaks on a timeless principle and answers the question, where is God when natural disasters strike? Because when we turn to Joel chapter 1, we see the nation, Judah, is in the aftermath of the locust devastation, locust invasion. You and I don't really think about this as much in the present day, but it still does happen both in the U.S. and abroad, but it was particularly particularly devastating disaster. They wiped out pretty much the food source and destroyed the land of the people at the time. And in, the, in light of this national tragedy, the people were asking, why is this happening to us? And more fittingly, where is God? What is God doing in the midst of all this? To this battered community, Prophet Joel speaks, and here in Joel chapter 1 through 3, we see Joel explaining the natural disaster with the emphasis on the day of the Lord, on the day of the Lord. When you read throughout Joel, and we're going to do a survey of Prophet Joel today, you notice the day of the Lord, this phrase day of the Lord appears time and time again. It happens in Joel chapter 1:15. the day of the Lord is near. Joel chapter 2 verse 1, because the day of the Lord is near upon us, Joel chapter 2, verse 11, day of the Lord is an awesome, terrible thing. Joel chapter 2, verse 31, day of the Lord arrives. Joel chapter 3, verse 14, there are the days of the Lord will soon arrive. Joel is the first prophet in the Old Testament to discuss this in detail, but it's also found in the 19 other places by eight different Old Testament authors. The question that we have to ask is, what exactly is the day of the Lord and why is Joel using this to describe what is happening? And it will take another lecture or so to describe it. But for our discussion, the simple definition is the day of the Lord refers to the day when Jesus returns to judge the world and to bring heaven on earth. Day of the Lord, church, refers to the day when Jesus will return to judge the world and bring heaven on earth. And based upon this understanding, Joel explains where is God in the midst of the disasters that is happening around them. And following an outline, we're going to look at how Joel's prophecy explains to us the day of the Lord that is experienced by the Israelites, how that illustrates our future day of the Lord, and what foreshadows for those who place our faith in God is all about. The first thing we see is the day of the Lord experienced by the Israelites, day of the Lord experienced by the Israelites. They say when the locust invasion strikes, 
titanic swarms of desert locusts resembling dark storm cloud. I know it's raining today. Imagine that dark cloud is not rain cloud, but the swarms of locusts. They rove through the croplands, flattening the farm, devastating all that in its way. This past June, actually, hundreds of thousands of the locusts had descended upon crops in the northern Af Afghanistan under the helpless gaze of the farmers. They say they eat everything that is green, wheat, peas, sesame. Um, the desperate farmers used to net sweep up the plagues of Moroccan locusts, one of the world's largest voracious pests. But they often say when the locust strikes, they are left with nothing. We walk with hungry stomachs to kill the locusts. If we don't kill them, our agriculture will be ruined. This year's outbreak could destroy 1.2 million tons of wheat and quarter of the annual harvest in the loss up to 480 million, according to UN's Food and Agriculture Organization. Imagine that kind of devastation in this small plot of land called Judah. And that's the invasion that Israel was experiencing and destruction that was so complete. This is what Joel says in chapter 1, verse 4. After the cutting locusts finished eating the crops, the swarming locusts took what was left. After them came the hopping locusts and then the stripping locusts too. Church, Joel is using this imagery in our mind to say the locust is coming. They're eating, they're taking whatever is left, and they hop and they strip of all that there is there to eat. And the complete devastation of the full source says it's all gone. And throughout chapter 1, Joel talks to the people, the farmers that were impacted, the leaders, the vineyard, the vineyard owners, the families, and the religious leaders of the day. Throughout that, talking to each group, telling them the destruction is complete. And one thing that I love and I noticed that what Joel does in this text is that there's no euphemism here. There's no false promise that the situation is not going to be that bad. Prophet Joel calls out what is happening as it is, and he basically says this is suffering. This is suffering. This is calamity. There's no sugarcutting around it. He allows the Israelites to sit in it, to experience the tragedy and recognize that there is a devastation here as well. And church, I think you and I, when we come to Christ Central, this is some of the things that we experience. I know we had a joining day today with our, um, our members joining, but I often tell the visitors that come to Christ Central that I, am, I was just like you. In fact, I was drawn to Christ Central even before I became a pastor here, and I chose to come here. I didn't apply to be a pastor here uh, because I saw a church that allowed people to sit in our pain in our hurts, in our fears. Recently, our leaders got together in our monthly meeting, and basically what we did was we sat there and we named our fears, our struggles of leading our church in a time of transition that we're in. And the goal wasn't to solve our problem necessarily or have answers to all the questions that we may have, but to name them and to allow us to be seen in that, to struggle with it. And you know what? I'm learning what it means to follow God. And oftentimes, beginning to follow God begins by acknowledging that I am in need, that I am fearful, and I am in ruins. And Prophet Joel shows us in this text, and showing the Israelites the complete destruction of their experiencing, allowing them to sit in it, every single person that are impacted by it. And here, in the midst of that, you know what he does? He reminds them 
that God is in the midst of all this. God is in the midst of all this. And this does not mean that God delights in the natural disaster or their pain. Nor is Joel saying that God is the author of sin and subsequent destruction like the locust plague was a responsibility of God to do this for no reason. He's also not saying that all disasters that people experience are related to particular sin. Rather, what Prophet Joel points for us in chapter 1 is the devastating effect of sin, period. What we see throughout the scripture is that our world is fallen in sin and evil, and that impacts our nature, our bodies, and the world that we live in. This does not mean we merely accept it, we lament, we cry for mercy, because this is not the way it was supposed to be. But when we look at Genesis, when sin enters into humanity, not only does it create alienation between God and humanity, and we call that spiritual alienation, but also with one another. That's why relationships are so hard at times, and we call this relational alienation. But what God also tells the, uh, Adam and Eve is that the land that produced fruit will now have thistles and thorns, meaning there's alienation of the nature. The effect of sin, as we see in Genesis, is so complete. It affects the nature that is so intertwined with us. Hence, we will have natural disasters that come. The brokenness is complete. The sin engulfs all of us as well as sin as we know it. The question is, so what? What do we do when natural disasters happen and we wonder, how can this happen? Where will be God of the universe? So, God, I get it. Sin affects us, but where are you in the midst of it all this? You know, in fact, Jesus was asked a similar question in Luke chapter 13. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus was asked when Herod's soldiers had fallen upon a group of Galileans at the moment when they were offering their sacrifices at the temple of Jerusalem. And at another time, there was a collapse of the tower in Siloam that killed 18 people. And the question was this, how can good God cause this to happen? Are we supposed to think that 19 people who died were more sinful or more deserving of God's wrath? And do you know what Jesus' response was? He didn't say, well, things happen. I'm sorry. He didn't say that. He didn't say, yes, they deserved it. He didn't say that. Rather, this is what he says in Luke chapter 13, verse 2. Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee, Jesus asked? Is that why they suffered? Not at all. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And what about the 18 people who died when Tower and Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No. And I tell you again, unless you repent, you will perish too. What is Jesus saying here? What Jesus is saying is that you're asking the wrong question. We often ask, why should calamity fall upon people or why would God do this to innocent people? But if you and I understand the depth and destruction of sin, the effect of the sin that has upon us, the question that you and I will be asking, should be asking according to Christ, is why shouldn't that happen to me right now? Why shouldn't I be destroyed by sin that I cause and commit instantly for my sins? We often put God on the trial for calamity and disaster, but we often fail to place ourselves upon the same trial. And the scripture is clear that sin affects our nature, ourselves, all of us around it, 
And what Christ is saying, repent, return to me, because death and the impact of sin is so complete. You and I all fall into that. The point of this story in Joel is the historical events Israel experienced and tragedy that we experience in our lives, we don't fully understand why and whom God chooses and what purpose he does at times. But we also know that God does not author it, meaning that this is not the way it was supposed to be. But the scripture tells us that he is sovereign God and he allows this to happen. And as one pastor once said, it is God's megaphone to the watching world to remind us that we are a finite being, that we desperately need God's grace in this fallen world. As in the times of Joel, when the locust plague devastated land, as well as in the time that you and I live in with this natural disaster is happening all around us, as we ask the question, where is God? And we ought to. We also should lament the sin that affects all of us, and we long for God to intervene. And that's what we see the day of the Lord experienced by the Israelites. But it doesn't end there, doesn't it? The story comes to us with the day of the Lord illustrated in chapter 2. There is a famous scientific paper called Letter to Humanity. It's one of the most talked about scientific articles of all time. And what is the warning? It's about the global warming and its impact. The writer writes, if the world doesn't act soon, there will be catastrophic biodiversity loss, untold amount of human misery. The letter endorsed by more than 20,000 scientists warning of what is to come was written for humanity. And regardless of where you stand and the impact of global warming, I realize this highly debated topic ever more so than ever before. And I'm not trying to take political sides here, but I think we all agree one thing is that there are always, and we teach this to our children too, right? There's always consequences to our actions. Consequences to our actions. And when we turn to chapter 2 of Joel, Joel highlights that our human misery Based on our sin, there will be human misery based upon our sin, but also there is a certain judgment that is coming on the day of the Lord because of our sin in our lives. Natural disasters experienced illustrate impending judgment on the Lord, uh, impending judgment that is to come on the day of the Lord when Jesus returns. And what Joel tells us is that more so than the natural disasters that you and I experience in this world today, when the day of the Lord comes, you'll be more devastating than the life's loss because eternity is at stake. And that's why we see in chapter 2, verse 1 through 2, it says, Sound the trumpet in Jerusalem. Raise the alarm on my holy mountains. Let everyone tremble in fear because the day of the Lord is upon us. It is a day of darkness and gloom, day of thick clouds and deep blackness. Suddenly, like dawn spreading across the mountains, great and mighty army appears, nothing like it has seen before or will, or will ever be seen again. Do you catch that? Prophet Joel says, let everyone tremble in fear. Because the day of the Lord, first of all, is the day of God's judgment. And that's very clear to see. Just like the invasion of the locusts, what Prophet Joel is saying God's judgment is coming, and it will invade the land, and you will see the effect of it. Secondly, what Prophet Joel says is the day of the Lord will be devastating. Not only, not only would it be devastating, but the future event that is to come will deal with the eternity. We have a long-lasting effect. And third, he says, 
only way you'll find yourself secure in this great troubled time is when you return to the Lord. It is only in the Lord you will find safety. And finally, he says, the day of the Lord will be followed by the reign of God through Jesus. Once again, to ensure to those who place their dependence upon him can find rest and peace in the day of the Lord. Based upon this, and this is the prophet's call. But church, I think we need to sit there for a little bit. Because I think a lot of times in American Christianity, we're really pampered in our sin. We're pampered in our sin. And we often even use even good things such as self-care and self-help by saying like, that's fine. That's who you are. And we often pat ourselves in the back and say, you're okay. You don't have to have a good relationship with everybody. That's fine. You, you, you could hate this about this person, and that's fine. You could do what you want, and that's fine. That's who you are. And I'm not saying those things are all bad. God has created uniquely. We do need self-help. We need self-care. Those things are good. But one thing that we also must remember is God is God and we're not. And if we don't understand if God is God and we're not, then we won't see sin clearly. And if we don't do that, then just like the prophet Joe says, we will lament on the day of the Lord. Because when the day of the Lord comes, it is the God who judges. And based upon that, this is what Joe says in chapter 2, verse 12 to 13. That is why the Lord says, Turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to angry, and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not punish. And three different times throughout verses 12 through 13 that we read today, he calls people to return and talks about true repentance. True repentance, church, according to Joel, talks about sin impacted by deep sorrow. It's not just feeling bad, being cut to the heart, reading, realizing that you are going the wrong way. In fact, that you have placed, replaced God and you became God in your life. True repentance, he also says, turning away in a deep conviction that you desperately need Christ. It is about knowing him, not doing the right actions. And finally, deep repentance, church, according to Prophet Joel, talks about understanding the depth of your sin is covered by depth of God's character. That's why he emphasizes that he is merciful and compassionate. If God who created you, God of the universe, he is the only one with mercy and compassion, slow to angry, filled with unfailing love, can rescue you. So return, O Church of Christ, return to him. And Prophet Joel tells us, don't wait. Don't wait and sit in the puddle of your sin. Come, to the Lord. Don't just put God on trial. You are on trial before the Lord Almighty. He's the ultimate judge. He is God. You're not. And the call today, same as the prophet Joel's call, is for us to come in repentance, repentance, humble reliance on his spirit to come in relationship with him. It's a dire warning. And as we preach through prophets, you'll hear this again and again and again. And someone asked me recently, why would you pick Old Testament prophet like this? Because all you're going to do is tell people, repent, God is coming. Repent, God is coming. And I kid you not, all 12 prophets will say the same thing, right? But I think a lot of times we don't hear that. We often want to come and hear good things that uplift us, make us feel good about our life and our Christianity, our journey, and we walk away hoping to feel good about ourselves 
But true joy, as we see in the scripture, comes from knowing who you are, knowing how God has saved you, and living in light of that. That's why I believe the prophets has a message for us. Amen? Because day of the Lord finally shows us not only it is experienced, illustrated, but foreshadows what is to come. From chapter 2, verse 18, to the end of Joel in chapter 3, verse 21, the focus shifts from describing the future day of the Lord, as we call this, uh, focus shifts to describing the future day of the Lord. And I often call this eschatology, meaning looking at the end times when Jesus comes to rule. And prophet, again, refocuses our hearts in calamity to true repentance and ultimately to God's heart. And it says the Lord will come. And he does that by showing us God's heart. Joel chapter 2, verse 18, prophet says, Then the Lord will have pity on his people and jealously guard the honor of this land. So the ultimate promise we see in prophet is not just calamity and judgment of sin. It's not just merely a God who says, you have run wrong, therefore repent. Or right, let's see how hard you repent and how hard you sacrifice and how much you're willing to lay down your life. That's not how he ends. That's not the gospel, right? What he does is show us God's heart in the midst of people that are turning away from the Lord and God's promise that says, because you cannot, I will do it. And throughout chapter 2 and 3, we see God moving to his people, God commanding. In Joel chapter 2, verse 19, it says, the Lord will reply, look, I am sending you a grain and new wine and olive oil. Chapter 2, verse 20, I will drive away these armies from the north. I will send them into parched wasteland. Verse, chapter 2, verse 25, the Lord says, I will give you back what you lost. Chapter 3, verse 1, then I will restore the prosperity of Judah and Jerusalem. And these are just a few examples of this. Sometimes we make our faith so much about keeping score of what to do and how many good things we have done. How often we read the Bible, attend the church, be nice to that person, that give, sacrifice. But rather, the focus, as we see from this text, is repentance and being in relationship with Him. Our walk with God must depend on knowing who God is and knowing, uh, being known by Him. The focus of knowing Him and being in relationship with Him is at the heart of God's heart for us. Either you're with God and not with God, the main difference is not what you do and what you don't do, it's the relationship that you have with God. One of the joys I had in youth ministry, I know we have a youth that are sitting here, is that in youth ministry, one of the things that, that they taught me so much is that relationship matters. If you know them, and if they are known by you, then you're in. And as youth pastor, there was always a challenge for me as I got to know our kids. It's not about teaching them the right things per se, but the important thing was, how do you know me and how much are you known by us? Remember this one youth student came up and said, Pastor, I love all that you say, but can you share a little bit more of how much you struggle? And that really changed how I thought about what it means to preach. The longest time, I thought I just have to teach you the right thing. But what they wanted to see was the struggle that they have. Can I see that in you? Can you live that out? Teenagers here, I believe you are an expert at that. You teach us what it means to be genuine and to be real. I think all of us have so much to learn. I love the youth are here with us because I think we can learn together because God values that. And I believe that's why Jesus came, 
to be known and make himself known to us so he can know us. That's who Christ is. Knowing him and being known by him. And through that, you are empowered now to be able to go out and live for the Lord. And Prophet Joel says this is what God promises to happen in chapter 2, verse 28, 29. Then after doing all those things, I'll pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. In those days, I will pour out the Spirit, even on servants, men and women alike. That's the promise that Prophet Joel gives, saying God will do the work. If you read the Bible, you know where that comes out of too, don't you? In Acts chapter 2, the day of the Pentecost, Peter quotes Prophet Joel and says, this is happening right now. And he says, in the last day, God says, I'll pour out my spirit upon all people, quoting Prophet Joel. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will see dream dreams. In those days, I'll pour out my spirit, even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And Apostle Peter was experiencing the fulfillment of the promise of the Prophet Joel, saying God will send his son to die on the cross. And as he rises, he will send the Spirit of God to dwell in God's people. You know what dwelling of God, Spirit of God means for you? That means you're known by him. And you know him. Now you have ability, the power, empowerment of the Holy Spirit that dwells within you. So you now can repent. Now you can love that person that you have a hard time loving. That you're willing and able to live for the Lord. Because you are now known by the Lord and Spirit of God dwells in your heart. And this is the gospel church. This is the hope. This is why we're Christ central. This is why we gather. This is what the Bible calls our mission and vision out to be. And this is ultimately my hope, your hope, all of our hope. Chapter 2, verse 21 in the book of Acts. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It undergards the fact that you and I are doomed to die. We're all headed towards death and destruction, whether it's regardless of natural disaster or not. But Acts 2.21 says, our testimony only depends upon when you and I call on the name of the Lord. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. Amen? That's what it means to love the Lord. That's what it means to be in spirit with the Lord. That's our testimony of being known and being known by him. That's our hope, and that's what we hold on to. Perhaps one of the most devastating natural disasters that you and I probably know more personally is cancer. Mutation of the body cells that attack our own body. We know this really well because our brother Terrence showed us his faithful resilience in beating the cancer recently. Um, and many of us, I think, would testify to many people in our lives that have battled through cancer. In the past several years, I have came across a friend's friend. Uh, I recognize we went to the same college as well, um, who chronicled her daughter's battle with cancer. The daughter's name was Ava Bright Lee. She was diagnosed with leukemia at the age of five. With chemo, radiation, and transplant, Ava beat cancer. But then she relapsed with leukemia cutis. 
And I hope this story, we long for stories to have happy ending, right? But after battling three years, she passed away on January 1st, 2017 at age eight. Esther Lee is the mother of Ava Bright Lee, and she chronicled their pain uh, by writing. As an English major, she's a writer, often asking the question, where is God? Where is God? And through Esther's writing, Ava's story has gained international attention. I want to read you one journal article after natural disaster of cancer, the death of Ava. They were gifted with the birth of a child, and they're struggling to name a child. And this is what she wrote. After a lot of thought and prayer, we have decided to change the baby's first name. It was a really hard decision because we love the meaning of Reese and what it stands for in the season of our lives. We also felt that this new name signifies something greater for us. I've named all three babies so far, Ava, Gwen, and Jude. For, for this baby, Mike, her husband, was the one who found the perfect name. He was so intentional in finding one that would encourage me. After considerably, uh, considerable searching and prayer, he introduced the name and its meaning to me while I was still hopped on very heavy painkillers right after the C-section. Early in the morning, a day after surgery, Mike woke me up with a whisper, what do you think of the name Liv, L-I-V? In my sleep-deprived state, still loopy and local, I told them I would think about it, and I rolled over and went back to sleep. Though I didn't realize and recognize it then, after spending the last week with her, we know that this is the most fitting name for our newest child, Liv. Liv means shelter. Liv, Ray, Lee. Shelter of God's grace. All this time through, we have been thrown out to the sea. We have been buffered by the amazing grace of God. There in the shelter of his wings, we find refuge. The promise I hold close to my heart these days is that God will protect us no matter how hard the wind blows and the waters rise. He will hold fast to us, making sure that our foundation is not shaken, the earth has given away from under. It had been a tumultuous week month, year, years. So much hurt, so much happiness collided when I think of Ava and what her life meant to us. I know the postnatal hormones are contributing to, but there are many days where memories of her bring about a heartache that is much deeper than I ever thought possible. It's unreal the depths we could fall from the joy we once knew. Those are the days when I long for a stop to this life and an end to the pain. Knowing this, Mike says something about this name that instantly brought me to tears. On the days you want to give up, and on the coming days when you may want to die from the crushing weight of her absence, Ava will want this baby to be encouraging and gentle reminder for you to live. Welcome, baby live. We've been waiting for you. And she ends with this verse. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give away, the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Psalm chapter 4, 46, verse 1 through 2. Church, this is our testimony.
Will you pray with me? Let's pray, shall we? Father, we need a reminder too to live in this life as we wait and anticipate the coming of our Lord and Savior. To call on upon the name of the Lord so we will be saved in the calamities of our world, the challenges, the struggles that we experience, the questions of where is God that often do not get answered. We pray that Lord will be reminded of this truth to live because of God's shelter, God's dwelling, being known by him, to know you is the call you have given us. So we call on the name of the Lord. We thank you for this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.